Our teaching text today comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 21. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. So in my 18 years of serving as a pastor, uh, the question, how much fasting do I need to do in order to go into an exorcism feeling prepared has, has come up exactly zero times. Um, no one has ever, ever asked me. Maybe they're taking that question to their small group. I don't know. Um, but at first blush, this feels a little bit like an obscure story. Uh, Jesus casting out a demon, uh, healing a boy that the disciples had not been able to set free. And then Jesus mentioning uh, something that it had to do with, with prayer and fasting. Uh, it seems about as niche a subject as, as you could find. It's like, is this a passage for those people who go back for a second doctorate? You know, is this... This is like the spiritual black belts only kind of, kind of a story. And I, I want to tell you, even if this passage starts that way, even if it seems to begin in an obscure place, um, I think it, it, it bumps up against some of the most crucial aspects of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, like real live, uh, you know, soul level concerns. What does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to be a person who prays? What does it mean even to be a human being in a, in a social world? So there's some mystery around this story, and we might not be able to fully resolve all the, all the mysteries in one crack at it, um, but I, I think there are also deep connections to what it means to join God in the renewal of all things. What does it mean to be uh, a participant in God's kingdom coming on earth in Brooklyn as it is in heaven? So right off the bat, I want to acknowledge one mystery, and you may have noticed this if you were following along in your Bible or on, on, on your phone. Uh, one mystery is in verse 21 where Jesus mentions this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer might not even be in your Bible. Anybody notice that? Wasn't there? <laughs> uh, and so, so here's the thing. I, I, I looked this up. Did so, did so, I was like, in the outline for the series, we're basing the, the primary, like, thesis of this talk around that verse, and then it's not in 
It's not in the NIV. Great, cool. Um, this is gonna this is gonna go well. So some of the more reliable Greek manuscripts do not have this verse included. Some people think that it was it was added later as a comment to harmonize with uh, the account in Mark. This exact same story is recorded in Mark chapter nine, and that verse is in there, but you might not have the fasting part included. Again, this is like, I don't need the second doctorate, get to the point. Um, the, the deal is, uh, it's, it's, it's in there in the, in the footnotes, the New King James has it. So I, I wanna say this, we're, we're, I wanna acknowledge that, and then we're gonna hit pause on this consideration, but I think it's safe to assume that at the end of this encounter, this sort of mysterious failure by the disciples that Jesus steps in and, 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 and saves the day, that, that at the end of this story, he mentions something about prayer and maybe even mentions something about fasting. But I wanna leave that concern for right now and look at the larger context of the story. So Matthew 17, what's going on when we get to this moment where Jesus and his disciples encounter this very desperate father and this boy who is, uh, who is deeply in need of healing. So um, Matthew 17 sort of has the, the story that we know and then this failure that, that we're hearing about now. And the story that we know, uh, Matthew 17 begins with the transfiguration which is this famous moment in the account of Jesus' life in, in the Gospels. Jesus draws away to a mountain with Peter and James and John and the things that have been hidden about Jesus on this mountain of transfiguration are revealed. Something of his hidden glory is shown to them. It's this one moment in Jesus' uh, earthly life and ministry where his, his glory shines out. There's a visible expression of who he really is as this, as this being, being from heaven. We, we've come to, to see his humanity in all the gospel stories. And here's this moment where he, he shines. And, and our minds are taken back to previous accounts of, of Israel encountering the Shekinah glory of God, Moses and, and, and Yahweh at the burning bush, Isaiah being undone in the presence of God in the temple. Woe is me, I, I live among a people of unclean lips, like just encountering the holiness of God. Elijah, right, the, the, the wind and the fire and the, and the still small voice and, and, the, and the hiding of his face. There's these encounters from time to time in the scriptures with the presence of God where it's like, Wow, what on earth? We're awestruck. And that's what takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration. This Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah even are there somehow. And, and there's this powerful experience of God's revealed presence. So many moments in the Gospels. We get used to Jesus' humility, his exhaustion, his frustration in this story, his hunger. Uh, and, 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 and in this story, in the Transfiguration, Matthew 17, we see him shining. We see his, his glory. And just like at his baptism, which we looked at earlier in, in this very year, there's an affirmation of the Father that comes, comes through. And I went back and looked at each account of the baptisms in the gospel this, this week, and the affirmation is almost exactly the same. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So at Jesus' humility in his baptism, we hear the affirmation of the Father. You know what I'm gonna do? This thing is popping off, like this sermon is popping off. And I'm taking this putting it here. Guys, tuck that away. Thank you very much. Um, now, now I'm going to just wrestle this the whole time. We're going to be fine, but I just want you to know how it's going. Um, this is my son with whom I love. I'm well pleased. And by this point, I don't know if the father is just like, we're not going to say he's frustrated at this point, but he adds one ad addition to the affirmation to those who can hear. Listen to him. This is my beloved son 
with whom I'm well pleased, I take delight in him. That's the affirmation of the baptism. So much time has passed here by Matthew 17 that Jesus is like, and also listen to him. Listen to him. I don't know, you guys don't think that's as funny as I did, and that's fine. We're just, we're, we all have the freedom to think different things are funny. Let me keep going here. Peter loves this moment. He's like, I love this. Let me build us a camp. I got some tents. We'll, st- we'll stay on the, on the mountain forever. Uh, I, 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 so much of what Peter says I can relate to. Um, God basically interrupts him. Peter's like, I'll make a camp. We can start over here. And, and God just says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Basically like, Peter, stop talking. Um, and Jesus is like, don't tell anyone about this until after the cross and resurrection which is something he continues to talk, talk about really in a matter-of-fact way to his disciples that he's headed to the cross, and they still can't seem to grasp this. But um, can you imagine this moment? I mean, it, we read it, we rush past it, and we're not gonna spend a ton of time like closing our eyes right now, but can you imagine seeing the glory of Jesus revealed, this transfiguration moment, him shining? Uh, Paul says that we see through a glass dimly, and I, I think all of us can relate to that experience of God where uh, there's something there, but I, I'm not sure that I'm fully seeing it or sensing it. I, I'm longing for more. And yet, could you imagine a moment where you couldn't handle all the more you were getting, <laughs> where you were overwhelmed with the sense? I mean, we sing it like in song after song, but what would it be like to truly be overwhelmed with the full expression of God's character? The scripture seems to indicate that the gospel is about preparing us for the possibility of enduring that. <laughs> That to be in the full revealed presence of God without the covering of Christ's blood and mercy would be actually quite a terrifying experience. So this is a glimpse of of the revealed glorified Jesus. But you know what struck me reading it this time? Not everyone was there. Not everyone was there. And just I want you to let that sink in for just a minute. Like all 12 disciples were called. Peter, James, and John get to go to the mountain with Jesus for the transfiguration where he's going to shine out in all his glory. Have you ever been left out of something that you desperately wanted to be a part of? I want you to just think about that in your own experience. Have you ever been, you found out these group of friends got together and you looked back, did I get a text? (laughs) I did not get a text. And yet here they are on social media enjoying their lives. Where am I? I am at home. Right? I want you to think about that moment. It's, it's so real. It's so painful. I'm not talking about I didn't win an Oscar. Or I didn't make it to the NBA. Like something that could have happened. And, and, and maybe someone, you know, that you love was a decision maker. Right? Jesus decided to bring some and not bring others. And that hurts. That, 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 that stings. And in my opinion, you can make your own judgment on this. This isn't the main point of the sermon. But in my opinion, being left out is worse than FOMO. Because being left out means somebody made a choice. Fear of missing out is just like, it might happen. This is like someone excluded me. Element of choice. And I think it's one of the, if we're honest... Right? There's, there's extreme grief and, and obviously pain, but it's one of those things that comes regularly into our lives, and it's really painful. It's really hard to talk about because it's embarrassing uh, to, to, be, to be left out. So what I do is I start to make this other narrative. I didn't want to go anyway. I didn't even want to go to your thing. I had this other thing I'm doing by myself at my house, which is better. 
and it involves just like Netflix, so whatever to your little party, friends. Um, it's, I find it's very easy to like either power down into insecurity or to ramp up into pride when I feel left out. And so I want you to think about that with this other nine, uh, this, this fear of being left out. So I started to look at this. What's Jesus doing? Is he trying to create a rift in the disciples? Like, why are these other guys getting this, this experience? And the reality is that this was a normal part of how a rabbi would train a group of apprentices. And there was very often a few of the apprentices who were often either older or it had more experience in following the rabbi that he would give the instructions to. And then they're learning the process of, of rabbiing and discipling one another, apprenticing. So they're passing it on to the others. And so it's not just exclusion. There is some strategy in here, but even if it's a normal part of how rabbis would train their apprentices, it still can be painful to know there's an inner circle and you're not a part of it. And then something happens to the remaining nine when Jesus is away. And so Jesus and the others come back from this experience in the transfiguration and right at their feet, right as they come off the mountain is this experience. And that's where we pick up in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. They could not heal him. All of a sudden, this little story that I thought was kind of niche and obscure has got like my real stuff in it. It's got my insecurity at being left out. It's got my frustration at something I wanted uh, to see happen that I thought should happen not happening. Something maybe that even I was able to do at a previous time and now it's not working out the same way. And what does that do to my faith? I've prayed and this thing hasn't happened. Have you ever been there? So I wanna look at four aspects of this story. There's this intense need, the intensity of the need. There's the pain associated with this failure moment. Jesus talks about the power of faith. And then there's this mystery around prayer, which I wish there was a little less mystery, but there's some mystery, folks. So first, the intensity of the need. First, just like taking uh, the, the story at, at face value, looking at the surface details, there is tremendous suffering going on in this story. And it's good to plunge with our imaginations into the reality of this experience. The focus lens of the story, as the gospel writers are telling it, seems to zoom in on the disciples in this teaching moment that they have with Jesus. But consider the plight of this boy. He's suffering physically. It says that uh, a couple of other translations actually name epilepsy as his condition, that he's suffering greatly from seizures. This would have been a very difficult life in the first century. It's a very difficult life today, even with a lot of the medical opportunities and, 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 and care that's available to us. Can you imagine living uh, w w with this condition in the first century? But there's this detail that's thrown in this as well. It says his seizures have thrown him into the fire and the water. So he's suffering physically, but there's an indication that he's also suffering spiritually. Because we know this father cares deeply for his boy. He's traveled some length to get here to this healing possibility. We can imagine that after the first time he was thrown into the fire, or the first uh, time he was thrown into the water, protections would have been put into place to make sure that didn't happen again. And yet it had. So Something was going on that was more than just physical suffering. There was a spiritual reality. And when Jesus actually steps in for the healing, it specifically mentions that a demon was removed. 
cast out. So we know that this boy, so imagine the plight. Sometimes we can't see where the, you know, sort of like circles cross over in the Venn diagram of what's physical and what's spiritual and what's emotional. But in reality, some, you know, a lot of what we're dealing with is more than just one thing. And it takes some discernment to know. But the boy is suffering physically. He's also suffering spiritually. Now, I want you to imagine the desperation of the father in this story, the father of the boy. Right? There's rumors that have reached him wherever he lives that there's this healer. Few people, right? How, how fast does word of mouth travel when someone says to someone, pick up your mat and walk, and then that person does, or says to someone, see, and then they see, or make sure someone has enough food, or make sure that the shame that has crippled their life is lifted off. All of a sudden, like people are going to start talking about this person. And so how far has this father had to travel? But he gets there and he finds, okay, this is indeed the group I've been looking for. And he doesn't know right away that not everybody's there. But he walks up and he asks for help and the disciples do the thing that Jesus has told them to do, what he's commissioned them to do. Uh, G talked last week so beautifully about the authority that we've been given in Christ and they step up to access and use that authority that Jesus has given them and it doesn't work. keep asking you, have you ever been, have you ever been, have you ever been in a place where what seems like your last hope doesn't work out? It's like every bottom has a trap door. <laughs> you can get to a place where you're so desperate and then you try the thing that's the only possibility of relief and it doesn't help. That's a new level. The intensity of the need. All of this longing and a hope for change comes together at the feet of Jesus at the moment that he gets back from the mountain. These transition moments in life are important. If you ever went to a youth camp, you don't have to show your hands, but the last talk at youth camp would always be like, how are we going to keep this going? It's been awesome while we've been here, but how are you going to keep it going? Huh? What are you going to do when you get home? How are you going to make sure that you keep these devotional? And this is the movement that they would make. You ever see that? Oh, come on. Gee, he's coming after me. I'm not saying you have to do that. This is the youth group I was a part of. But there's no sitting in silence for Jesus and journaling about his reflections from the transfiguration retreat with his favorite three. Right as he comes off the mountain, this need is put right in front of him. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus, knelt before him, like you just imagine him collapsing with need in front of Jesus. Lord, have mercy on my son. Your other guys couldn't help. Which brings us to the pain of the failure. So much is riding on this moment. We mentioned like, this guy has traveled here. This boy is experiencing physical and spiritual suffering. These disciples are trying to step into their vocation, their identity as apprentices in Jesus. They've seen the rabbi himself do these things. I've been watching the NCAA tournament, and I know from experience at Trinity Grace Church that most of you, 93%, don't care at all. I know you're artists, and that's fine. But you can like sports a little bit. It's okay. I just want to speak that spiritual permission over this group. But one of the things you'll hear at tournament time 
is all oh, this team was, you know, like peaking, you know, er- earlier in the season, but now they're without their starting guard who sprained his ankle, and now they have to face this intense game without, without their, their normal starting five. And that's a sports illustration to show you what's happening here in this story. Don't shake your heads. That works, guys, okay? That works. Peter, James, and John are all missing from the starting five of disciples, Guys, are you tracking with this? They're out. Okay, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Tell us more about the starting five. What do you mean? They're the guys who start on the court. Relax, okay? But the coach is out. Jesus isn't there. Everyone's at the transfiguration. They missed the team bus. And here are these other nine confronting this kid who's suffering physically and spiritually. They couldn't do the thing they were commissioned to do. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. There's renewed pain for the father of the boy. And then Jesus expresses his frustration, which I don't love. I kind of wish he would comfort. Listen, I wasn't here. The other guys weren't here. Starting five wasn't here. Let me step in. You guys are fine. Let me take care of this. He's, he's, he doesn't say that. He's frustrated. Then Jesus answered, oh, faithless and perverse generation. <sighs> This is like Peter when Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like just like a few verses before, he was like, the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you, that who I am, Messiah. And now he's like, get behind me, Satan, because Peter's saying to him, I don't want you to go to the cross. And Jesus is so focused on the reality of his kingdom coming in and what it's going to require. But you just feel the exasperation of his spirit in this moment. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. There's not that many moments where Jesus' frustration comes out this clearly. But maybe it's connected to the reality that he had just shined out in his heavenly glory. Right, Philippians talks about that he had equality with God and didn't think it's something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and, and, and took on no reputation whatsoever. And maybe this is just one of the human moments where that pain and the humility of that suffering comes crashing into Jesus' conscious experience. And he's like, how long do I have to do this? This is hard. And right then, you remember, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has suffered in all the ways we suffer. He knows what it's like. Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured at that very hour. I like this story because it shows us some angles that sometimes we see a little less than others. We know the, the, the struggle of the disciples, what it is to be a learner or an apprentice or in the place of a child who hasn't gotten a handle on something yet, who hasn't, who hasn't stepped into their full identity, who isn't living in the fullness of their vocation. We deal with that type of thing at church a lot, what it is to, to need grace to still be on the journey that you're not where you're going to be yet. But here we get the exasperation of a teacher. And some of you will know this as well. Like, what, what does it feel like to be Messiah in this story? What does it feel like to be a rabbi? What does it feel like in your life to say, no one seems to be getting it? I know that feeling a little bit as a parent. No one seems to be getting it. I will say, and this is not a shot at you people, but every now and then I've had that thought as a pastor. No one seems to be getting it. And I've, I've thought like, yeah, maybe it's me. But you have those moments where it's just like, ah, we're doing the thing and the thing isn't happening.
And the tough part is the real consequences for that are right in front of him. They're collapsed at his feet. The profound need for God's kingdom to be breaking in and for these to use their faith and authority in Christ. So I want to pause right here because I want, it's so easy when you become a regular reader of the scripture, it is so easy to know the end of the story and that informs how you read it. And so you can't really access these moments of tension which are in the text. And the reality is right now, if you pause just at this moment, right after Jesus heals the guy, there's a bunch of conclusions that you could make. If the story ended right here, what would you think about this reality? You, you might say, listen, there's certain types of healing that just can't happen. Or that, that you know, Jesus is the only one who can do the real kingdom stuff. You know, there, there are spiritual elites who have to tackle the toughest cases. Or, or prayer is so inconsistent that we can't know if it's going to work or not. Those are the type of conclusions you could make if the story ended right now. And those conclusions might not give you the full perspective. And that's why what the disciples do is so important. And it's very simple. They just follow up with Jesus with a question. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Now, to me, there's a real human moment there where they have to fight through the feeling of failure the insecurity of having been left out of the transfiguration bit, uh, the, the, hey, you, you set us up, like all types of different feelings you could be having. And what they do instead is not walk away and sort out that pain on their own. They come to Jesus with a question. And this, we've said this at Trinity Grace for years, but I wanna reiterate it this morning. Where you go with your questions matters. Where you go with your questions matters. Many of us, make conclusions, we have to, we make discernments, we make choices, and we have only some of the information and we have our best guesses based on our formation up to that point, but sometimes that's not quite enough to give us the full picture. And there's no shame here, but I wanna invite us to bring our questions to God. Sometimes God is like number 10 on the list. It's like, let me Google, let me check with my friends, let, let me Google again, like wherever, and where you go with your questions matters. I want to say this, don't let someone without faith or with very little faith be the final word for you on what faith can be. And that's very prevalent in our world. We sort of think lack of faith is equal to sophistication. That's sort of like in the water of our culture or that cynicism is attractive enough to be wisdom. And sometimes we, we, we talk about in church borrowing one another's faith. Sometimes in our culture, we borrow one another's doubts. I take on this really sophisticated asking of this particular question from someone who has very little experience with faith, and then I come and let that backfill and define my understanding of God instead of taking my questions to the source to the word of God, to the Holy Spirit, to, to the collection of, of the spirit in, in, in the gathering of the saints, to prayer and worship. Where you go with your questions matters. There's been so much you know, ink spilled and, and, and air you know, like expressed around this idea of deconstruction. And there's lots of good reasons to examine the, the deep underpinnings of what we believe as a society and what we believe in the gospel. And there's certain, there's lots of things inside of the church that need to be reformed and repaired. There's lots of things inside of American culture that need to be distanced from in the way of Jesus. But where you go with your questions and who your guides are going to be is a really important question to ask in deconstruction. 
It's a really important question to ask when it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to work. The, boy, the boy's father comes directly to Jesus. Can you help me? Your disciples couldn't. Can you help me? Some people need to do that with the church. I had a terrible experience at my first three churches. Can you help me? And they say that to God directly. And we know, we, we know humbly enough, we, we can misrepresent Christ. <laughs> and, and so where people go with their questions matters. We need to take seriously our, our, our collective representation of Jesus as, as ministers of reconciliation, as though God was making his appeal through us. But the father of the boy comes directly to Jesus, and then the disciples go directly to Jesus as well. Who knows what their conclusions would have been if they just tried to sort it out in the conversations with, them, with themselves. They want to learn what the limitation was. And Jesus pulls no punches whatsoever. I, it's like tearing the Band-Aid off. It's like that story in, in the Narnia stories where the, you know, the dragon's peeling, the, or the, the lion's peeling the skin off. Like, I, I shouldn't have even gone there. You don't, if you don't know that story, it's weird to mention. Um, I'm going to go to page five of the outline. We're tracking. We're doing fine, okay? But he, they want to know what the limitation was. And what, what he doesn't say is important here. He doesn't say, you're just not the type of people who can do this. He doesn't say, it's only going to be me from here on out doing the big miracles. He, he, he doesn't say, you're far too sinful and always will be. He doesn't say, this is never going to happen. He says the limiting factor, Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, right to the heart. Jesus tells us something that the New Testament reinforces over and over again. God's power in our lives often flows through our faith. And I'm like, God, why did you put something so powerful with such a limited governor on it? that your power would flow through our, our lives by our faith. And yet there's something in the heart of God about longing for our participation, for our relational connection, that he won't just take his power and apply it most of the time just outside of a relational context. He keeps saying, my kingdom is gonna move along relational lines. It's going to pour through your very lives, your very experiences, the very exercising of your actual faith. That's the way my power is gonna flow into this situation and bring change. And that brings us to the power of faith. We're going to get to Jesus, uh, you know, the specifics, what he says about the mustard seed and nothing will be impossible. But the first thing to mention is the boy is healed. <laughs> Whew, the relief. Can you imagine? In the boy's life and the father's life, physically and spiritually, freedom comes into his life. This is a story about breakthrough. It's a story about the disciples learning something really important, but it's about breakthrough in this man's life, in this boy's life. Can you imagine, right? A day goes by and no seizure comes. A week. You gotta be thinking, is this gonna last? And it does. He's healed, he's free, he is renewed. The kingdom of God, joining God in the renewal of all things. This is what it looks like in an individual life. And then Jesus gives a description of the power of that faith to the disciples. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
How can we talk about the size of faith? Mustard seed? I don't know. I, I, I've grown up hearing the important thing about your faith is what your faith is in. That's what gives, in, in, in a sense, it's, it's not like how much can I ramp up my feelings. It's the fact that I'm trusting in the accomplishment of another. But I think this story brings something up for us. What is it? What is faith? Is it, is it a, um, a feeling of assurance? Is it a set of actions? And I think this is something we can continue to explore. There's, there's like a few brief definitions that faith is, is, is confidence in something that we can't see. It's taking God's promises as if they're true and going to happen. It's, it's acting on the things God has, has said. But you know the trifecta in the New Testament, faith, hope, and love? Sometimes I find it helpful. This is just a, a tool that I've used to take one of those and say, if this works for one, does it work for the other? And it, it, that's just, it's just a small, limited exercise. It doesn't have to, everything doesn't have to be exactly the same. If it works for love, it might not work for faith. But, but when I look at the other two, hope may be felt, love may be felt, absolutely. But they, may, they can be acted on without feelings as well. So if you're in a situation and you don't feel loving, but you still act loving to your child or to your spouse or to your friend, sometimes the feelings follow behind. Sometimes we have to learn to act in love even when we don't feel the, the tingly feelings of love. And this is one of the, the challenges of why the love in our culture is sometimes shallowed out so much is because we think when the feelings go, the love goes. But that's not, the, that's not the reality of the agape love of God. It's something that includes feeling but transcends feelings. And so what if we apply, apply that same thing to faith? And when I pray or when I believe for something, I'm not just trying to ramp up my assurance, but I'm trying to act on the promises of God no matter how I feel. There is some mystery there. That's the last thing we're gonna hit, but I believe that what Jesus says is true, that if we have faith and it's truly confidence in God and his promises, even as small as a mustard thing, seed that tremendous things can happen. Yes. Amen. Testify. Let's go. I love it. Here's how I handle this. And I, I'm reserving the right to not see the full picture. Um, but I want to grow in my faith and maturity. I want to tell you something that I try. And that is, I try to assume God is going to do what I'm asking in prayer. I try to assume God is going to do what I'm asking in prayer. And you may think that wisdom or sophistication or experience indicates that you should assume that he won't. But I think faith invites us to assume that he will. Now, there's some caveats that could be brought in, but the first thing to say is, I know he can. I know there is nothing that I'm asking God to do that he's like, I really wish I could, but I can't. I know God can. So then I don't know after that what the limiting factors are. Those are mystery to me. So uh, I think it was Tim Keller who said this. If you don't know, just attribute it to Tim. But God will answer. God will answer what you want if you knew everything that God knows. You're not tracking with that? All right, well, Tim Keller said it, not me. So, uh, God, God, God will answer. 
God will answer what we would want if we knew everything that God knows. And to me, like, that's, that's, that's a doorway. It's a helpful thing to begin to imagine, okay? I don't know all the limiting factors, but maybe if I knew everything that God knew, I would understand why this prayer was being answered in this way. And then there's this other issue of God's will. Is this, am I praying in accordance with something that God wants to happen? And here's the thing. If you don't know God's will, what should you do? Pray. Where you go with your questions matters. Not knowing what God's will is on a particular issue doesn't mean you shouldn't pray or shouldn't pray boldly and specifically for that thing. Let God intervene and change your prayer. Many times in my life, I've been asking God for something and then after praying about it for a week, my prayer starts to change because I do start to get an impression of God's heart on the matter. And it's not, it's not just the perspective that I came in with it at the beginning. Right? We, 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 don't pray, we don't pray what we don't know, but you can bring your not knowing to God. Don't let not knowing God's will keep you from praying. This is something that I, that I think about in my own life. I think about for our church. I don't want it to be said, though it could have been said many times in my life. You don't have because you don't ask. And the thing is, we're not given a glimpse into exactly how the nine disciples failed in this story. We don't know what they prayed. We don't know what they said. We don't hear their inner monologue. We just know it didn't happen. And James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Church, I don't know how many days all of us have left, right? I'm not trying to be morbid, but let's consider the reality. What if you spent from now until the end of your time just saying, I don't want it to be said of me, I don't have because I don't ask. I'm just gonna ask. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna seek, I'm gonna knock, I'm gonna soak the ground with prayer, and I'm gonna see what God does. And all the limiting factors that are beyond my awareness, I'm going to bring those to God in questions, but I'm gonna keep pressing in and asking that God would move, that God would do the things that God does, because when he does, people get free. Physically and spiritually, people get free when the kingdom of God breaks in. That's the power of faith. I'm actually not even that impressed with a mountain moving. People can do that with dynamite and, and equipment. But somebody getting free the way this boy does, man, I want all of that I can handle. So when you, when you find a doubt about God's power in your prayer, offer it up to him. When you find a selfishness showing up in your prayer, and you're going to, if you pray for real on a regular basis, you're gonna find some selfishness in your prayer. And that's okay, offer that to God when you recognize it as well, but don't stop praying. <laughs> this is just a quick note. Um, this is some of what fasting has been for me. I know we're doing this as a collective practice as a church on Wednesdays. If you've been with us for Lent, we're giving up uh, food from sunup to sundown for the Wednesdays in Lent. If you can't do that, it's no big deal, but it's an invitation to participation for our church. And, and for me, Fasting has been this thing that I don't do to earn God's love, but in response to God's love, a small sacrifice of devotion and worship. It's a way for me to pray with my body. It's a way for me to say in my physical self, I'm hungry for God to move in my life. I want him to move in my church. I want him to move in my kids' lives. I want him to move in their schools. I want him to move on the streets of my neighborhood. I want him to move in these different industries. I want God's kingdom to show up in these places, and I'm gonna express it in my hunger from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Wednesdays in Lent. And other times as well, but fasting is a way to pray with your body. 
And I find it makes me a small degree more attuned to some things that I can ignore when I'm full in my belly. I don't know how that works exactly. I don't know why there are some things that breakthrough doesn't happen unless there's prayer and fasting, if that verse should be in here at all. But the reality is, from my experience, I get more attuned to the reality of God's voice at times when I fast. It's something you could try. Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you. I heard a commentator add, basically, nothing will be impossible for you that Jesus has given you the authority to do. I think that's a safe, biblical, true, courageous statement from this story. Nothing will be impossible for you that Jesus has given you the authority to do. G talked last week about, about, about relationship, about transformation, about the authority Christ have and the authority he gives and delegates to us. Are we walking in that sort of nothing is impossible type of prayer life? If not, we can. Last thing I wanna mention is the, the mystery of prayer and fasting. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. We've already said it, but we don't always know why a breakthrough doesn't come. I've often thought, like, is prayer like pushing on a door and you ask someone else to pray with you and now you're two pushing on the door and then 10 are pushing on the door and then 10 are pushing on the door for two weeks and then the door opens? I don't know how it works exactly, but there does seem to be some indications at times that there's an application of spiritual power that takes place in, in, in prayer that doesn't, it doesn't change things in one prayer flippantly thrown up to God. Sometimes it requires intercession. Sometimes Jacob has to wrestle with God all through the night and come away with an injured hip. Sometimes there's travailing prayer. Sometimes there's something you pray for, not just for for two days, but for two years or 20 years, and you're pressing on the door, and you don't know the limiting factor. Is the, is the enemy on the other side of the door? Is the brokenness of the world on the other side of the world? Is there some other reality? That I don't know. We, there is mystery to the reality of prayer, but I do believe we are applying spiritual power to a real reality in the world when we pray, and that's what makes intercession so profound, and that's essentially what this story is about, getting something from God's kingdom for something. For some someone else. We talk a lot about getting things for ourselves. How can I experience breakthrough? My true identity, my freedom, my vocation, absolutely we should. But this is a story about securing freedom and breakthrough for someone else. The application of our faith and prayer and fasting on behalf of someone else. What are you going after in your life for someone else? That's a question I want to end on. What do you want to see? Freedom, breakthrough? Amen, freedom. In your friends, in your family, in your kids, in your city, in your workplace, where do you want to see the breakthrough of the kingdom of God? Just for a second, let's enter the bliss of self-forgetfulness and put ourselves off the table for a minute. Who are those people that are experiencing physical and spiritual burdens that you want to see lifted? You want to see freedom break in. You're longing for them to know the embrace of the love of God. You're longing for them to, to know the Father's love so much that they could whisper Abba in the secret place, to know the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
Where does healing and freedom desperately need to be seen in your sphere of relationships? I think this story invites us to bring our frustration, our pain, our disappointment, and our deep need right to the feet of Jesus, even if he just got back from retreat. Remember how much power Jesus attributed to faith. Let's use our faith on behalf of others. These are my last statements. Intercession is a way to secure good things, including breakthroughs to life and freedom for other people. Let's go after this. Faith and prayer, fasting and prayer, is a way to exercise faith in secret that you long to be expressed in public life. I'm gonna say that one more time. Fasting and prayer. If you wanna know what we're up to on Wednesdays, if we're, what we're up to on Zoom on, on, at noon when we're praying together, what we're up to, everyone's invited, 945 pre-service prayer, come pray with us. When you gather in your life groups, when you gather in homes, when we fast and pray together, one of the things that's happening is we're exercising faith in secret that we long to see have an impact in public life. It's a profound thing to see the kingdom of God break in, joining God in the renewal of all things. Let's build a future in prayer and then live into it. Let's assume God is going to do what we ask in prayer. Let's assume God is going to do what we ask in prayer and then let God correct us if we're wrong on that. I don't think we're gonna get to the end and be like, he's just like, you just had way too much faith. I needed you to dial that back a bit. Let God correct us if we're overreaching. But let's assume that God's gonna answer what we pray. And let's, let's ask God now, even in this service, as if we believe that nothing is impossible. In the authority and victory that Jesus has given us. Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would take our little faith and grow it that you would expand faith in this space right now. I pray that right now in the name of Jesus, you would grow faith in the hearts and minds and souls of those who are present in this room. I pray there would be an expectation that would grow in our hearts, that you are a God who hears, that you are a God who cares, that you are a God who heals, that you are a God for whom nothing is impossible, and we would lean on you and run to you and cry out to you and trust you in that way. Teach us to pray, God, with our words, with our silence, with our fasting, God. Teach us to express our longing in poetry, in silence, in groans. Grow our faith, God. I, I pray before this service is over, you would call specific things, specific people to mind where breakthrough is needed. And then in humility, we would go after those breakthroughs in faith and prayer. And that we might see the expression in these places of your kingdom, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to prepare our hearts to receive the meal. Sometimes get the question, why do we do communion every single week? Uh, the church I came from, we did it once a month or periodically or whatever. And there's, in a sense, it's a choice, but the reason we've made the choice is because we want to be formed by the repetition of coming to this meal every single week. We want to be formed by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus at the heart of this community. We want to be those who take all of our hope and expectation and longing at the end of a sermon and we bring them to the accomplishment of Jesus.
not just the intentions of our willpower. So let's prepare our hearts. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, there is faith in this meal. (laughs) By being nourished by the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It means we're proclaiming the victory of Jesus and expecting that victory to be, be expressed when he returns. And right now in this intermediate waiting time, we, we, we come daily to his grace. We come daily to his victory. We take his body, we take his blood as, as an entrance into, into his mercy. Good question. The rest I'm gonna explain after to you personally. I wanna invite you, as you come to the table this morning, to take hold of this victory and be confident in the promises that it represents, that Jesus' broken body and shed blood wins our salvation, brings us into the family of God forever. And then I want you to pray with the boldness of children. I want you to pray with the boldness of children for what you're longing for and breakthrough. I want you to bring specific people to mind that need physical and spiritual freedom. And I want you to pray for them by name. Some of you will need to get together with a couple people and you're like, let's press on the door together. There'll be people up here to pray with you. Some of you are gonna come and, and, and kneel down and in your posture with your body and your words, you're gonna pray and ask for breakthrough. Whatever ways the Holy Spirit leads you, I wanna invite you to be nourished by this meal of grace and then to pray with great courage like children for breakthrough. Heavenly Father, bless the meal, bless the bread and the cup, and bless your church as she comes forward. Lead us by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Church, as you're ready, come and receive the meal.